This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, Boomers, to another episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Floyd Dorsey, and I'm standing in the armory with my co-host, Jeffrey Harlan, a.k.a. Mr. Atos. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? I am doing great. Uh, Just went and saw that uh, new concert, The Ultimate Voyage, and I had a great time with that. Nice. Yes, that that was great. I was actually working on setting up this show, and I messaged Jeff about it. And I told him, Hey, you know, um, I was talking, I was wanting to talk to Norm about something and I haven't heard back from him. And Jeff's response was he's sitting right next to me. I was like, that totally blew me away. That was so awesome, Jeff. And then I sent you a picture of the two of us sitting next to each other. Yes. That was great. I was like, what? Pixar didn't happen. Seriously. (laughs) Like how often do Trek FM hosts get to be sitting right next to each other when we're talking in Trek FM business? You know, that was so awesome. So, also, folks, on our show today, we have our regular guest of Warp 5. He's the creator of Star Trek Horizon, and in my opinion, an eminent multiple fan film award winner, Mr. Tommy Kraft. Welcome back, Tommy. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me here, and uh, thanks for the confidence in my award-winning status. Uh, hopefully you're not going to like try to be a Ferengi and snatch them all up and sell them on the black market once I win them. <laughs> no, we'll just maybe take some selfies with yeah. your, your <laughs> okay. pile of trophies. No, man, I'm, I'm predicting a pile of trophies here, man. I watched Horizon and it was awesome. It was fantastic. Well, thank you. It just blew me away. Thanks so much. We were uh, just looking at that. Like as soon as I watched it, I was thinking, man, we need to bring Tommy back and we can do some uh, in-universe, just spoilerific, spoiler it all to death, you know, maybe, right. I don't know. But uh, you gentlemen, you may be wondering why I called this officer's meeting in the armory today. I know there's no chairs to sit. We're all just standing around. But rather than the comfortable confines of our conference room, well, actually, I have been given assignment. We've been issued a special assignment from the admiral himself. And this mission is top secret, and we are not to share it with anyone except for, of course, our Warp 5 listeners. So the mission is to create in-universe explanations for perceived continuity issues 
in enterprise. So what do you, what do you, what's your first thoughts on that? When you first think about that, Jeff, I think it's going to be fun. (laughs) I do too. I do too. Tommy, are you ready to go? I'm always ready. All right, man. Well, I want to preface this right away because when we're trying to explain continuity issues, generally it's going to be compared with the original series, Uh, some TNG, but not so much the later series, mostly it's original series. So just wanted to get that right out there with folks. If they didn't really realize that the warp five listeners, I am a huge fan of the original series. I'm a huge, huge fan. Like that was my number one that I've saw when I was five years old, a long time ago. And that's what got me to be a star Trek fan. And one of the reasons that I'm a enterprise fan is because it reminds me so much of the original series, even more than the other series, I believe. And of course, Jeff, you're a huge fan, right? Unless you've changed your mind since maybe last week, right? <laughs> yeah, I completely can't stand Star Trek anymore. I don't know what I'm doing here. Right. Yeah, the original <laughs> series. I mean, they, they, they're just, you know, Chief and Norm are just bringing you on standard orbit just to try to, you know, like, shoot holes in all the theories, I'm sure, right? <laughs> so getting that out of the way, with the premise of this show, just – an admission that we just have to make the original series, it was just not very, it wasn't very consistent with itself, much less the rest of the star Trek universe and everything kind of has to work around it, even though they didn't really know what they were doing back then. And nearly all this Trek has inconsistencies throughout. I mean, there, because you have different writers, you have different directors, you have just different people changing around all the time. There's just things going on. Also the producers, had to create a prequel that had to look like it's our future, but it had to be Kirk's past. So that was like, that was a huge thing. So Tommy, you've actually working on horizon. You got to build the ship and I'm pretty sure you've said that that is probably, that's your favorite ship. Oh yeah. No, the NX one is my favorite ship. And you know what I will say is just that the general modus operandi for lack of a better term of tv was different back in the 1960s you know once you get to the 2000s and now you have a much more focused narrative you have serialized storytelling and you have you know writers who are really seriously taking a look at their canon and that wasn't as much the case back then and so whenever we move forward and try to create a continuation, and especially a prequel, it makes things kind of difficult sometimes. And just by the nature of the fact that storytelling is so different now, even if it looked exactly the same, it would still feel different. And so, you know, a good example is with the NX-01. Now, I know Doug Drexler, the guy who designed it, his opinion is that the 1701 from the original series, Constitution, looks more futuristic I disagree. His opinion is that because it's so simple, it's more futuristic. The more futuristic you get, the more the less uh, things you're going to have tacked all over your ship, whereas the NX-01 has stuff going everywhere. It has all these hull panels. Uh, whereas I think just due to the sheer fact of the amount of detail on the NX-01, it makes it look more, quote-unquote, realistic and believable. So... You know, it's just one of those things that you have to suspend your disbelief for. You know, the sets are more complex. The original series didn't have a lot of curves because they're harder to make and they're more expensive when you're building sets that have all these curvy things, whereas the NX-01 had that all over the place. 
Uh, there's more color. Well, they're not at the beginning, but certainly not more color. But there's more uh, design choices going on by the time you get to Enterprise because as much as they tried to make it a prequel, it was taking into account all the other Star Trek shows that came before it, not just the original series. But that said, to answer your question, yes, I do love the NX-01. It's my favorite Star Trek ship. And I, I even have to admit, when I first saw the NX-01, it put me back a little bit because it was supposed to be a prequel. And when I saw it, it does. It looks, man, it looks mean. It looked to yeah. me, it just, it just looks mean. And it, I, they even like Star Trek, the magazine even sent me a poster, like a big poster of it for being a, a subscriber. And I, it looked really good, but even at that time back then, I kept the poster rolled up. I was like, well, I don't know, man, you know, it's supposed to be before Kirk's, but it, it looks like it could probably beat the 1701, maybe in a race. I'm not sure, but <laughs> right. But well, I mean, anyway. think about like the, the lost in space movie for anybody who's seen it. When they launch the Jupiter 2 and they launch it inside the uh, like the chamber that looks just like the original Jupiter 2 from the original series, even that like uh, that launch pod, if you will, that looks exactly like the original ship looks more advanced than the one in the show just by nature of the fact that it was designed like in the late 90s and they had more to work with more money and more stuff to build. So you you have this problem in the 60s where you are not able to design something quote-unquote realistic and so once you start stepping outside and want to make it realistic it starts to become more quote-unquote advanced in my opinion right so hey jeff uh weighing in on this from the original series point of view what, what do you think about it you know just just the situation that they were in in the 60s versus the situation they were in in the 2000s what do, what do you think well, a lot of that has to do, like you were saying, with the production values that were possible in the 60s versus what's possible today. And it's just the plain and simple fact that we're able to do a lot more on a television budget now than we could back then. The sets alone today look completely realistic as compared to back in the 60s where you could tell it was painted cardboard. Or, you know, plywood or whatever they made it out of. Some of it was just pieces of styrofoam that they spray painted. You know, it, it's whatever they could get their hands on. And they were literally dumpster diving to go and find stuff to put on the, on the set. There's only so much you can do with a budget that that's that limited to make your, your sets. And they had to build every single set from scratch, which limited their budget even more. And today, we're able to do a lot more with a lot less. And that, that played a huge role in it. But what they did on the show to try to bridge that gap was really inventive and really ingenious. You know, some of the little tricks that they did over the course of the series with the monitors slowly getting filled with more buttons so they looked more like the screens on the original series than they did at the beginning of the series. I mean, little things like that. It was just really well done. And I will say, too, as an addendum to the whole budget thing, I think if you compare the NX-01 to the Constitution-class refit, the Constitution-class refit instantly looks more advanced, in my oh, opinion. Yes. yeah. But that's because they had a budget. They had to, the movie budget. Yeah, they, exactly. That's right. To, to build a ship that actually had more detail in it. You know what's funny? Is as a kid, I didn't see... Well, I saw the motion picture in the theater 
as a kid because I made my aunt who was in high school at the time, make me, I made her take me to the movies. And, uh, she had later told me that it was the intermission. That was back when we still had intermissions and it came intermission time and the lights all came on and I was so little. I didn't realize when they turned off the movie, she goes, Oh, well it's time to go. And we left. And I didn't get to see the end of the movie. But that's a whole other issue that I'm working on right now. I'm I'm like I'm still scarred with that by be <laughs> seeing the rest of the movie later on a black and white TV with static because it's an aerial and I got to see the movie and I got to see like the Wrath of Khan the same way. You know, it came out on like I think it was ABC maybe. Like we only had two channels at my grandparents' house and it was it was kind of hard for me as a child to have been watching the Kirk Spock Scotty Enterprise with you know no A B C or D and then I saw that one I actually you know just thought yeah yeah it is kind of futuristic I was kind of liking the other the other part and then even when I saw the first NX01 Enterprise it took me a second it kind of knocked me back a little bit because it wasn't what I was expecting to see. Although now I appreciate it so much. I mean, you've got visible cooling fans. You've got handrails. Oh my gosh. I, I bet you Kirk wished they hadn't have uh, advanced so far away from having handrails. Am I right, Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> and seat belts. And seat yeah, belts. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, there's handrails in the corridors. There's handrails on the side of Travis's navigation station. Which is great. I mean, that when you get up to make your awesome speech up in front of the monitor or in front of the view screen, you got to have something to hold on to in case, you know, something happens or somebody shoots at us. The practical uniforms. I mean, that's that's awesome. I mean, it looks like it looks like somebody that would be flying in the Air Force right now. See, what I want to know is how did we get from jumpsuits to uniforms that look like T-shirts but can maintain an independent body temperature, whatever you said of that? <laughs> Yes, I want to know how that to, happened. I was about to say, Jeff's about to mention, <laughs> yeah. like, what, what was it called, Jeff? It was the indi- like individual climate control. Like, yeah, set- they, you know, it's like they land on the planet and you know set your uniforms to seventy two degrees. <laughs> right. And apparently, they weren't using uh, uh, Celsius uh, at you know at that point anymore. Right. right. They they just <laughs> backed away from from Celsius for like fifty years, then went back mm-hmm. by the time of TNG. I have to say, Tommy. I might have to agree with Doug on it. You know, finally in my mind, when I got it down and I really thought about it, the smooth lines of the original Enterprise, everything's hidden. It's all nice and clean. I had to just, in my mind, I had to think, okay, yeah, it's not just painted cardboard. It is more advanced because we don't see the water pipes and we don't see everything. And, you know, if you took away the 60s switches and the light bulbs, it, it kind of it it I I think it looks more futuristic to me now. But I I would agree if you could touch it up with a bigger budget, if you could just you know add. A, I mean, you think about like the you know the Enterprise D or the E or Voyager, very sleek, you know, especially Voyager, but it still looks you know more futuristic in my opinion than the constitution class but that's just because they had more to work with so i think like conceptually i just can't forget about the 1960s look enough to see like i i've tried like i've literally tried but i can't forget about it enough to see it as something that's more advanced than the nx01 yeah that's true that's true 
Well, moving to our next topic, since we're in the armory already, let's talk about the weapons. So in the original series episode, Balance of Terror, Spock mentions the Earth-Romulan War. And Tommy, you know a little bit about that since, you know, you had a little or hand in uh, <laughs> producing some of that history yeah. on Horizon, right? I was going to have a bigger hand, too, until that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, maybe we can talk about that maybe at the end of the show here. Yeah. But Spock mentions primitive atomic weapons. And he also mentioned before there were ship-to-ship visual communications. And also, Jeff, we had the cage where they were using lasers. So how do we explain phase pistols and photonic torpedoes in Enterprise? What do you think, Jeff? Well, the atomic torpedoes, my thinking is for the first two seasons, we had the spatial torpedoes. And they never said what the payload on those things was. Uh, You know, maybe that was a nuclear device of some sort, which got replaced by the photonic torpedoes. But the rest of the fleet perhaps didn't get the photonic torpedo upgrade. Maybe it wasn't possible to upgrade these other ships to to carry them like they could with the NX class. So only a few ships have these new photonic torpedoes with the antimatter warheads. But the rest of the fleet has these spatial torpedoes, and they have the nuclear payload. So that's my thinking. My thinking on that has always been, uh, I, Jeff, I don't remember. Um, in TOS, did they say that the Federation or the Coalition were also using atomic weapons? Or um, just the Romulans? I think it was... It wasn't specified who was using atomic right. weapons. Uh, I think the the quote was, you know, the war was fought with primitive atomic weapons. Right. So my thought on this, and this is something I was going to do in my uh, now canceled Horizon sequel, tease, tease, um, was that the Romulans would have brought out the nukes when they had their backs up against the wall and they just wanted to be vicious. Like, it's clearly outdated technology. It clearly is not as fe- as effective as a matter-antimatter warhead, but it's still very destructive in a different way when you nuke a planet. So my thought would be they would start nuking colonies, and the fallout would be even worse because, mm-hmm. you know, all the people that would die from radiation sickness. So that, that was my approach. Yeah, and you could also have the... Uh, um like maybe they could set up some of these cloaked minefields yes. that are filled with nuclear mines. Yeah, that, that could cool also too. happen. Yeah, I like that. The atomic weapons, I mean, we could sign that off with they would be maybe cheaper or easier to create mm-hmm. than the antimatter, which was hard to come by, possibly. And like we said, you know, we could get prototypes. I mean, those were just prototypes and they were only available for the NX class ships. And then, you know, depending on which timeline you look at or which version you're looking at, the NX class ships were limited in use in the Earth Romulan War, or possibly they would have been put to the side or doing something on the side and not actually on the front front lines, just depending on how you want to put that together with the books and all the different versions that you've seen of the Earth Romulan mm-hmm. War. I just put that a little bit to the side that, okay, if Spock is really correct, because, I mean, he could have been wrong. He could have been making a mistake. He could have been lying, even though, you know, Vulcans are said to not lie. They lie whenever they want to, you know, or need to. He knew Kirk wouldn't know. He was telling Kirk about it. He knew Kirk wouldn't know. Or maybe he was just checking to see if Kirk knew. 
Like, or maybe you know, he was just informing the audience. <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. There you go. He's informing the audience by trying to check the captain's knowledge right. on this. And then he laughs behind his back when he, when the crack doesn't call him on it, you know. And then he and Chekhov get together later and they both laugh at how stupid Captain Kirk is for not knowing his history. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, he, he skipped that class. He was with right. uh, yet another co-ed. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. he was reading a book. You know, again, depending on which version of Kirk we want to look at. Right. You know, he was the bookworm, so he maybe he was in a library. Um, but what about with the cage with the lasers, which, by the way, are really cool. Those were really cool looking pistols that we had there. I always saw that is that was just a nickname that they used for it. You know, the you know, maybe it was still technically some kind of a phase pistol or some variant thereof, but they just called it a laser. You know, it was it was the slang that they used. Nice. Okay. I like that. My the thing I've always wanted to know is why at some point did the torpedoes and phasers change color for like fifty years <laughs> and then go back to the uh so it's stuff like that that I'm I'm like because you can always like headcanon the story stuff easy enough, but that like I'm interested in a technical explanation where like you have an episode of Enterprise where they're like, oh hey, we've got new phaser arrays and they shoot them and they're they're blue or whatever. You know, it's like oh that's just a nice little you know head nod. That's what yeah, I the blue uh, the the blue phasers came from the Andorians. That's a that's a that's a great idea because the Andorian weapons on Enterprise were blue. Yeah, everything's blue. <laughs> Yes, it's the booze, the skin, the weapons. And you could also work that into the Romulan War, too. Like if, Mm -hmm. you know, in the coalition, they're all working really closely together and the Andorians have better phasers. And so they supply some phaser technology to Mm -hmm. their allies. That would have been really cool to see. It's almost as if I was going to put that in a movie. (laughs) Hmm. Oh, man, the teases, the teases. I know. Okay. All right. So uh, was there anything else that we wanted to get on the weapons or... Are we pretty good on that? Well, you could say the same with the torpedoes, too, in terms of, mm-hmm. like, color and and the fact that... Correct me if I'm wrong, but they never used the term photon torpedo in the original series, did they? Um, Yeah, they did. Oh, did they? Yeah. Oh. Well, you see, I'm just not as, as, yeah, as it's, well. Yeah, it's when they actually introduced them. I mean, they, I don't think they even used the torpedoes for the entire first season, as far as I can recall. But when oh. they did use them, they were photon torpedoes. Oh, well, I, I retract my, my point. <laughs> And we weren't really but, sure where they were coming from, yeah. you know, because yeah. here I was, here I was a little kid. <laughs> Depends trying to on look. the episode. Exactly. I'm looking at it, trying to see where they're coming from. You know, again, we talk about the advanced technology for making a show and with the high def CGI that we had for the ship. I mean, you could see the torpedo tubes on the NX-01. I mean, they were consistent. And so... Yeah, again. Well, they just, made it consistent for the, the remastered, uh, the original series. That's true. That's true. The original version, it was inconsistent. Yeah, I have the DVDs with the original effects because I was trying to be a purist. But yeah, I've seen the remastered versions. It looks pretty cool. It looks really mm-hmm. cool. All right. So our next item on the list is let's talk about the first Vulcan. So this apparently is just a heated conversation on many message boards that's i actually had some ideas off the top of my head of inconsistencies that we could talk about and we can you know explain them but then i also went to like trek bbs and a couple of other message boards and they're just boy they were just yelling at each other basically and one of the topics that got a huge thread like hundreds of comments on was talking about vulcan the first vulcan in starfleet 
So Jeff and I, we were talking about this before we came into the armory here when I was walking down the corridor. And I was wondering if Spock had been referenced as the first Vulcan in Starfleet ever, actually. And it seemed like I was thinking that he had, but I wasn't really sure. So, Jeff, what what were you thinking on that about Spock being the first Vulcan in Starfleet? Was that ever they mentioned? Never, they never said it on screen. Okay. Ever. Okay. It, As far as I can tell, it was like maybe in the writer's Bible that, you know, it kind of hinted at that. And that made its way into some book or another or something. But it was never actually said on screen. And it doesn't make any sense for him to be the first Vulcan in Starfleet. If you've got an entire starship, Constitution-class starship, no less, full of Vulcans. Right. True. Yeah, that didn't really make sense to me either. Because, you know, were they all younger than Spock? And as big as Starfleet has to be, Starfleet Academy on Earth cannot be the only way that people get into Starfleet. Right. It's just not nearly a large enough uh, um, graduation base. So I'm thinking they maybe have academies on every member planet that feed into uh, the the fleet. They're on all, at least the main founding worlds. Yeah. I mean, maybe the one on Earth is the main Starfleet Academy and, you know, they have like some kind of an ROTC program or something. But that can't be the only one because it's just not nearly enough. I mean, every time we see Starfleet Academy, we see maybe a few hundred people graduating each year. That's not nearly enough. Considering the overall size of the Federation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when you think about like in the context of the initial, like you have Earth, Andoria, Vulcan, and Teller Prime. Uh, is there one more? Alpha Centauri. Right? Some sources say Alpha Centauri, but yeah. uh, it's never. The only time it actually said that that was a founding member was in an almost illegible piece of news <laughs> clipping on in Picard's scrapbook in Generations. So uh, probably not canon then. But yeah. you have, I mean, you have like four planets all feeding into what's really a military, more or less, that has to encompass at least four worlds. Like you, it's just, and then to think that once you fold in, you know, all four planets into this, like, then you think like Earth's military is probably going to go away and be replaced by Starfleet. Well, they already had Starfleet, but Vulcans is going to go away and Dora's is going to fade out eventually, I would assume, since you're essentially becoming yeah, a state in the government. Somehow. Right. Yeah. So just the idea that 100, 150 years later, there still wouldn't be any Vulcans in Starfleet, the chief military slash exploration arm of your government it just doesn't make any sense especially since they were the most technologically advanced at that point yeah yeah it's like i so it's just one of those things that i i don't really know how you could even make that work if you tried so looking at this i mean to paul she didn't start out in starfield she was she didn't end in starfleet either i don't think i mean at least not technically right and, she was more of like an honorary member. Well, at the be- at the uh, beginning of season four, she was actually made, and they like gave her an official commission, but she never wore the uniform for some reason. Right, because wasn't she like an acting commander basically? Uh, season three, she was. Season four, they made it official. Oh, did they? Yeah, man, I've seen the show three like times the, in a row. You'd think I'd remember that. Yeah, at the beginning of season four, I think it was in uh, the episode Home. 
I think. Archer is presenting her with a compass that he gives to her right. as a gift for becoming an official member of Starfleet. That's right. So the question is, why did she not wear that uniform? Because she would have looked so much better, just like Seven she of did Nine. in the two. Like there was like two or three episodes where she did, and she looked great in it. I know. Well, the one of them I know was the one where Archer uh, like had the parasites. And yeah. Was in then the future. there was uh, there was at least one other yeah. that I can recall. I did. I thought she looked great in the uniform, and I mean, I li- I thought Seven of Nine looked great in the uniform. If we're gonna flip way over to Voyager, you know, on this kind of thing, but in universe explanation, why did she not wear it? Perhaps it had something to do with like her, like a formal Vulcan female military attire, maybe. I mean, it was similar to the uniform that she was wearing that was the Vulcan uniform. So for in-universe, maybe it's something like she thought that maybe the uniforms that they were wearing weren't formal enough. Maybe there was a political opposition to her becoming a member, so it was a compromise that she would have the rank and privileges but would not wear the uniform right i mean that makes sense you'd have a really hard time explaining that on the tv show which is why i can see why they never did when realistically i think they just wanted something as skin tight as they could get for uh yes realistically they did we're trying to stay to keep this in universe i I mean why why did troy never you know wear a uniform you know that that irked me too it took captain jellico the hero to step in and put that thing straight now, you know, we were, we were having a big conversation about that last week. But anyway, oh. um, so yeah, to Paul, she was the first Vulcan in Starfleet. I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there. What, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I mean, that? she would have to be. Jeff, do you concur or do you, yes, do you abstain? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, she, she was absolutely the first Vulcan. And I think she blazed the trail for others to follow. Okay, well, yeah. the author of Trekopedia just stated that, so boom, that is canon, okay? <laughs> it, I'm knocking that straight in. The court reporter's locking that down, all right? So the next topic that we have is Romulan cloaking technology. Boy, this just gets people going. Why do the Romulans have cloaking technology in Enterprise in the 22nd century when Kirk and Spock are clearly talking about being surprised about the Romulans having cloaking technology in the 23rd century. So, Jeff, what what do you think about this? My thought on this is that they're not so much surprised about the cloaking technology itself. They're more surprised about how good it is because it completely conceals the ship, not just from sensors, but also from visual. It's completely hidden from every sensor that they have on the ship and they almost can't find it at all. It it takes a lot for them to figure out how to track it. And Spock makes a comment about how the power requirements to maintain a cloak of that type would be, you know, significant, which means that theoretically, at least they already know about cloaking technology and there's at least some kind of a conception about it. So, I'm thinking cloaking technology has been a moving target on on Star Trek for some time at this point. And this is just the most recent development where they've come up with something that no one has ever seen a, a cloaking device like this before. See, I don't even know if I would buy that because there were times in Enterprise where you had ships that would cloak. And even if they weren't Romulan ships, it would be completely undetectable. 
And you would think in like, you know, the hundred years between Enterprise and the original series, they would have encountered other races with this technology. So the thought to me that Kirk would see a ship that's cloaked and look at that as a caveman looking at an airplane, basically, uh, which may be an extreme analogy, is a little like I don't know that that like it seems like that would make him pretty stupid. <laughs> In terms yeah. of like his overall experience. And so I think that that's one of those things. Like, so that's why even in Enterprise, if they didn't give the Romulans cloaking technology, logistically, it still wouldn't make sense that there's a possibility that Kirk would have never heard of a cloak like this. It just doesn't work. So that's why at some point you just have to put, throw your hands up in the air and say, okay, I'm going to fudge it a little bit. The other option is uh, this is all the result of the temporal Cold War. That. I do like yeah. that option because it's a very easy explanation. Yeah, because maybe, you know, the version of uh, the events of uh, Balance of Terror that we saw was how it originally happened, but now history has been altered by the various factions of the Cold War, and now the Romulans got their cloaking technology at least a hundred and some years early because they had right. it in uh, season two. Oh my gosh. You no, know, uh, it's almost as if I was going to write something like that in a movie. Mm. <laughs> Oh my gosh, Jeff, you've just created a whole other show where we're talking about <laughs> what timeline are we actually in. That's a whole other show. And now... No, I don't think we've been in the original timeline since The Cage. <laughs> you know, I have a question about The Cage, by the way. Was that originally intended to be a part of canon? Yes. Because they did reshoot their pilot, so why did mm -hmm. they release The Cage? They uh, edited what they had into the Menagerie and tried to make it fit what they had later established. But, I mean, that was that was their first pilot, and that was how things were going to be at that point. But then uh, they, they made some changes when they did the second pilot. Right. Yeah, like originally they said, like, oh, no, the networks came back and was like, that's too smart. That's too intellectual. It's We don't like how serious the captain is. You know, I mean, these are just things that I've heard. They don't like having a woman as first officer. Right. And because, I mean, she's just one shot away from being captain. You know, that, that scared them. According to various sources that I've read, I've heard uh, these are the voyages uh, books talked about that. I like the cage. It was different, though. It was like, like I said, when I was a little kid watching it and I'm seeing that, I'm like, dude, that's not Captain Kurt. You know, what is this? But it was really, really cool. It was really neat. The story was really neat. It really stuck with me because I remember seeing parts of it throughout my whole life, but I couldn't really remember where it was. To me, when I saw the Romulan ship come in, I wasn't like, why is it uncloaking? I was like, wow, this is okay. It gets serious now. This is what I've been waiting for. Something that's getting us close to the Romulan War. Because I knew that this was actually occurring. The events of Enterprise were occurring before the Romulan War. Oh my gosh, there's the Romulans. And I've got to say, I'm recording this show while I'm wearing my official Romulan Star Empire t-shirt. Okay? I love the Romulans. And I'm not kidding. I'm wearing it. I'm, 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 I, yeah. I sneak it under stuff. You oh, know? I believe yeah. you. I believe you. So, yeah, my, my first thought on uh, on that decloaking scene on uh, um, uh, Minefield was that they weren't actually using a cloaking device. They were using some kind of uh, holographic technology to conceal the ship visually. So now we're pulling – we can go all – we can go out of track and go into James Bond, you know, because James Bond had a cloak car. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so did I mean the Romulans had their ship in season four that had the holograms mm-hmm. that made it look yeah. like any other ship. So you could theoretically retcon Minefield into saying they were using that same technology back then. And they were just projecting the stars behind them into the visual field of whatever ships are right. around. And one interesting idea I've heard is that maybe, like, I, I don't know how plausible this would be in future stories, but that they had, like, base structures or, you know, some sort of base ship that would project a cloaking field that their the rest of their ships could enter. So, like, generally speaking, they didn't have cloaking on their ships, but if they were mm-hmm. in the vicinity of the structure, they could have cloaking. Oh, wow. Which is, I think, is an interesting concept. Wow. Yeah, and that would also uh, address the power consumption issues. Right, if it was a base instead of a, a ship. And then we get, like with like we said, with Enterprise, the Vulcans and T'Pol like to point out constantly how primitive their sensors were. And the Andorians even talked about how much better their sensors were. So maybe, you know, we could say that cloaking technology they had there wasn't really that awesome. It was just they couldn't see them with their sensors. Well, and obviously it wasn't that awesome if they were able to use that array the archer had to detect the Zindi or the Suliban, I mean, to detect the Romulans. I mean, they were able to see through that cloak pretty easily. Uh, and that's another species, by the way, that had a cloak, the Zindi. And they got that from the future, though. They did. That's true. And, you know, that also lends to your idea about the timeline being changed. Yeah. Because we and never, supposedly in the original th- timeline, they never met the Zindi until like the 26th century. Yeah. And that's the other thing is that ties into that is that Maybe the Romulans in the 22nd century got their cloak from a captured Zindi ship. Or Ooh. not Zindi. I'm sorry. Uh, Suliban ship. Yeah. I was about to say Zindi. Because I was thinking yeah. Suliban. You guys said Zindi. And now I'm yeah. sitting there like going. I, I, I meant Suliban. I meant Suliban. I'm going through my, too. Going through my yeah. filing cabinet in my head here. And I'm like, wait a minute. I don't yeah. remember that. I don't remember that. <laughs> Misspoke. Okay? Like, sorry, to, sorry to scare it's you. It's like the reptilians. <laughs> are, and then I'm like, no, no, no. That's Jim Hadar. They have the personal cloak devices. But, right? Yeah. The, uh, the, right. You know, so we've got. The Suliban got their cloaking technology from the future, and maybe some of their ships got captured by the Romulans, so the Romulans got their cloaking technology like a good century ahead of time. So that's a change to the timeline, just like a lot of the other things that were going on with the the Temporal Cold War that were changing the timeline during the course of the show. I like that. I like that. And and for those listeners that want to keep it in-universe, the Romulans had it. We just couldn't see it. And it just wasn't as good. And then Kirk and Spock were just really impressed, you know, with how amazing it was later, you know? Yeah, kind of kind of like, like uh, you've seen cars before, but when you see a Tesla, you're really impressed. <laughs> that's a great example. That is a great example. Oh, thanks. Or like a Lamborghini pulling up next to you or something, you know? That's, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you have cars and then you have this other kind of, this other thing that looks like it's a car, but it looks like it could take off at any moment, you know? All right, very good. So for our next Topic. Let's move on to Klingon First Contact. So this was a topic that I saw all over the interwebs as being uh, this is why Enterprise is not Star Trek, that the first contact, everyone knows that the first contact with Klingons, Picard states that centuries ago, a disastrous contact with the Klingon Empire led to decades of war. So Now we're getting into TNG, which that was something I was mentioning. We've been picking on original series all this time, but TNG, early TNG was less than consistent itself. So if this was really the case, it didn't really say first contact. It was in the episode called first contact, but 
he just said disastrous contact led to decades of war. So was he mm-hmm. really talking about the events of Broken Bow? And if so, did Archer really get this whole thing started? You know, I mean, what? Well, uh, history was changed with the Temporal Cold War. I mean, that's how they got introduced to the Klingons was because of the TCW. So you could make an argument that originally, however, we were introduced to the Klingons was completely different. Okay. So. so and it's also the argument that could be made that uh, when Spock is talking about disastrous first contact, he's not talking just about that one instance. He's talking about a series of events because every single time that Archer ran into the right. Klingons, he ticked them off a whole lot more every single time. And it got to the point where the Klingons were just about ready to invade Earth. Yeah, so that's true. That would be a pretty disastrous first contact because instead of letting this guy die an honorable death, he prolongs his life and takes him home in disgrace. And then he, instead of letting this crew die from the attack from this uh, this uh, other alien race and die when their ship gets crushed in the uh, gas giant, he drags them out and dishonors them by saving their lives. And it just goes on and on like that. And that's just completely flying in the face of their culture and just totally ticking them off and making relations just really bad. Well, let's not forget about the other ones, too, like the mining colony where Mm -hmm. he helped fend off the Klingons. And then, you know, the one where he got sent to Rurapente, where he helped those uh, those people who were being attacked or, you know, being followed by the Klingons and basically caused the destruction of that ship. Then you have the whole interaction with Duras. Uh, you know, and they put out a bounty on him, this and that. So, like, he never really, you know, you're right. Aside from a few exceptions, he never had a good interaction with the Klingons. And even then, when things are all said and done, at the end, they'll say something to him in Klingon, he'll look over at Hoshi, and she'll say, you don't want to know. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, besides, just to defend Picard a little bit here, although, I mean, Picard could have been just trying to show off. You know, I'm sorry, TNG fans, if you're listening, Warp 5 listeners, if you're TNG fans also. I mean, Picard could have been wrong. You know, it, this is a... He Picard studied history, but wrong. he could have... He did study history, but he might have gotten some of his facts mistaken, like a minute ago where we accidentally said Zindi instead of Sullivan. Right. I mean, if, if Picard <laughs> right. would have said that, that's the law. I mean, he's going to say whatever... He's going he's gonna to have the answer. He's one of those managers, maybe... I mean, I don't want to pick on the Picard, but he's one of those managers. If he doesn't know the answer, he gives an answer anyway, even though you're not supposed to do that. You know, (laughs) so he didn't want to admit he didn't know. But let me just defend Picard. If Picard was correct here, the decades of war may have been a little bit of a stretch. Maybe we're talking just conflicts or just bad blood. And it definitely got started in Broken Bow. I I like what you're saying there because he's... One thing, it was letting the Klingon live in disgrace, but then it was being saved by these puny, hairless humans. You know, that's that's just, that was just, man, that was just kicking them while they were down as far as they were concerned about their honor. Well, you think too about like, what does it mean to be at war for decades? Are you say, you know, like when you think about like, you could say, that we've been at war, the United States, with the Middle East for a really long time because there's always been some sort of conflict we've been involved with over there. But it would be a, sh- a really big stretch to if you, if you were to go back and say that that has been like, you know, World War II for the past 10 years. 
So I think a lot of times when there's lines like, you know, decades of conflicts or whatever, people tend to get overboard in their imagination and what they might be. And they start viewing that as like some sort of galaxy wide conflict with the Klingons where there's people dying all the time for years and years and years. You know, it could have just been skirmishes for years. It could have been like a generalized Cold War with skirmishes here and there. You know, it could have been anything. Right. And I, I know like Jeff, Jeff and I are big history fans. It could have been like the Hundred Years War in uh, Europe where it was not 100 years of constant conflict. It's right. just a whole bunch of different little conflicts that added up together. And in retrospect, we call it. The That's what I was about war. to say. Right. And it's always the the way the war is mentioned is always in the point of view of the person that's speaking it or the history books that were written. Mm-hmm. The Federation may mention the Klingon decades of war, but the the from the Klingon point of view, it just may have been dishonorable nuisances. You know, it's it is what it is. Right. You know, it is what it is. For me, though, yeah. That that's always a big sticking point for TNG fans is that we're talking, you know, Picard mentioned decades of war and all of this, and they they weren't supposed to meet the Klingons at that time. But you know, like you said, Tommy, the temporal Cold War, we had Celebons that were being aided by Future Guy, and that's why we even had that even that situation going. That's why they were on Earth because he crashed on Earth. So it, those what may not even have happened in that. In the other timeline if you want to stick straight timeline yes this is leading to the kirk that we saw that was filmed in the 60s then maybe this this could have been what picard was actually mentioning and you know i'm i'm good with that either way i'm good with that let's move to the borg this is another thing that people are like why are the borg on there why are we seeing the borg so time travel yeah i mean <laughs> it's a really easy answer. I don't know why people are questioning this, to be completely honest. Well, go ahead. Lay it, lay it on us, Tommy, because I'm thinking you and I are both thinking the same thing. So put it to us. Man. Yeah, I mean, people loved First Contact, generally speaking. Nobody had an issue with that. And so then in Enterprise, you just continue that story a little bit. Uh, you, you have a continuation of what if, you know, some pieces of that ship fell to Earth when they went back in time. Easy peasy. I, I don't see what what the issue is here. And the fact is, like, you know, I, I feel like when you get to Picard's time in the Borg, like the, the name Borg is never used in Enterprise. You know, they even change the, uh, you know, the, the 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 tagline when they hail the Enterprise. I don't think they, they I don't think they say we are the Borg. They just say you'll be assimilated, basically. Sure, there might be some photographs or sensor data in the databanks, you know, 200 years from then of two people or five people who were Borgified. But like 99.9% of all people in the Federation are never going to know that insignificant little bit of history for when the Borg come to meet Picard. So, yeah, I don't see the problem. <laughs> I, I and you've got a you've also got a ton of cybernetically enhanced species that are known to the Federation. Yes. And you have to have some really strong Google food to figure out that this stuff is out there to find. Right. I mean, I can look for stuff on Google and spend hours and hours and hours and not find what I'm looking for. And I know that it's out there. They don't even know to look for this. Right. So, and it makes sense that this would be something that they would find out later as maybe part of that think tank that uh, Shelby was part of when they were researching ways to fight the Borg. 
And it also ties in with generations where Guinan's people had been attacked by the Borg and they would share what they knew. And then there's also the, um, you know, just all this other information. And then that leads up to the Hansons going out in the Raven, trying to find out more information about this mysterious species leading to Seven of Nine. Yeah, it works. It makes total sense. I don't see what the problem is. And even better than this, this whole thing is a predestination paradox. Because the very first instance with contact with the Borg was actually in the neutral zone, the season finale of season one, which was intended to lead into a big Borg storyline in season two, but that didn't work out because of the writer's strike. And so when the Borg showed up, they never mentioned it again. But then in Best of Both Worlds, Shelby makes a comment that those outposts that were attacked in that episode were a match for the attack on the Borg in that episode. Then you have the Borg go back in time to try to stop first contact. Their ship gets crashed. Some of them get reactivated. They send a signal out. Archer says it's going to take 200 years for it to reach there. 200 years later, it's the next generation time period. And they get the signal, they send out a cube to go check it out, or a scout ship or something, and they start assimilating those outposts along the neutral zone. I like it. I like it. I'm glad you said predestination paradox, because I actually had that written down also. Uh, Also known as a causal loop. And uh, Mm -hmm. for those listeners that are wondering what that is, uh, the best example that I can think of is the Terminator movie, where Mm -hmm. your future doesn't exist unless someone from the future goes to the past to start a chain of events. And what we're looking at here is, is that the first contact wouldn't have happened if it hadn't have been for Picard and the board going back in time. And Riker was right there with Jordy on the Phoenix the whole time. And that's how in order for Picard to have his uh, enterprise E at that time in the first contact movie, they had to have gone back in time to set this all in motion before uh, Enterprise, before original series. So, yep, I'm, li- I'm glad you said that because I totally had that written down just in case. Um, Tommy, something back there that you had said that the, the Borg had a different tagline, that just cracked me up because it was like, hey, man, these, <laughs> these are proto-Borg. They, it was, the Borg didn't have trademarks. They didn't have a trademark yet. So. Well... Well, well the were. rest of it was the rest of what they said was exactly the same. And the way that it was cut, it sounded like they were halfway through the speech when Hoshi put it up on the speakers. Oh, that's that's an interesting way to look. I mean, another I hadn't thought about that, but another way you could look at it, too, is since they were cut off from the collective, maybe they just weren't in their right mind. <laughs> you know, that's a possibility, too. I like your answer better, though. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, something else that people had mentioned on this, just this seems so simple, but they were saying, you know, well, Picard wouldn't have left them. And at the end of, you know, when the when they zipped away and they jumped into the temporal vortex, Picard wouldn't have left those boards. That's exactly there. what he did. And, these, you know, these are just people, they were defending Picard and they were, you know, jumping on Enterprise on it. And I, I was just like, dude, they thought he was blown up. Picard had a lot of stuff going on. Between the start of the movie and the end of the movie, you know, there was just a lot going on. I'd forgotten about him. So I don't know. Yeah. And he was also trying to stay out of sensor range of the Vulcan ship. So I think he was just trying to hightail it out of there as quick as he could. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I mean, he made a mistake. 
I'm sorry. You know, Captain mm-hmm. Picard made a mistake, possibly. You know, they they probably they may Not have the first time. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, that's why he has another well, heart. Yeah, that and that isn't his first ship. <laughs> you know, he he makes mistakes. I'm sorry. It's his, it's his <laughs> right, third. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, do we do we want to talk about flocks and beating the nanoprobes? Denobulan physiology is different than ours, and. He even said that the radiation, the amount of radiation that he exposed himself to to uh, deactivate the nanoprobes would have killed a human. That's true. So they could never so use that. So it only worked again. on him. Yeah, it only worked on him. So then people have issues with the nanoblians. Then that's another thing is that that research that he had into the nanoprobes would be another thing that Shelby would later find, which would then maybe be something that they could use to figure out how to disconnect Picard from the collective in Best of Both Worlds. But again, with the Googling skills, it's just so obscure, you know, the chances. Mm-hmm. It would be really hard to come across that, you know? You know, something else that we've mentioned is that when the the Borg actually went aboard the NX-01, they started messing with systems. They started trying to simulate the ship. So to me, I was like, oh, wow, that would be an easy way for data to be corrupted and gone. I mean, that's not going to change what the crew's reports when they come back, but they're not going to have hard. They could possibly come back without hard data, without sensor logs and without that. I mean, if we wanted to get into like really trying to explain it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could easily explain that. Well, final thoughts. What are you thinking, Tommy? Are these wrapped up with a bow great enough for you or do they need some more help or explaining? What do you think? Uh, generally speaking, I never had an issue with the continuity and enterprise. Uh, I never had an issue with the Ferengi on the show because again, you have the same answers as with the Borg, you know, who would ever think to go back and look at that one encounter with the NX-01 where they were taken over by some aliens, you know, like you wouldn't put it together. So that wasn't an issue. And I'm not a big canon police you know it like when i'm writing my own stuff i try to get it accurate but generally speaking like i just try to enjoy the shows and when you know it would have to be a pretty bad like breach of canon for me to go whoa that wasn't like that didn't that wouldn't worked and i'm even taking it so far as i've said before that like if it were up to me making star trek and i were making in a mirror darkly i might have updated the set and the look of the Constitution class for Enterprise. Oh, wow. Because it just doesn't mesh, in my opinion, as a more advanced ship. But, so that, I mean, that's just an example of, like, how, like, little this stuff tends to bother me. Jeff, what's your take on it? Did it bother you with the the look of Enterprise, or just the issues that we had with Enterprise as opposed to original series? Uh, No, not really. Part of it in the back of my head, I was thinking, well, you know, this is being made like 40 years later and technology has changed for us in the real world. So things are going to look different on the show. Uh, Another part of it was that uh, these control panels that they're using on the ship, you know, well, maybe they look different because they're also being influenced by designers from other planets who think about things in a totally different way than we do. You know, that's why we have jelly beans for buttons instead. There's a lot of different ways to explain it. I, there's, I, I think there's very little that cannot be explained away somehow. And that's where people like, you know, the fans like I am who are able to think of these things and we look at it and just kind of say, well, how can I make this work? 
that's where we come in. You know, the, the writers of the shows, they're worried about telling a good story. The people like me, we're worried about figuring out how to make it work. I agree. I agree. So thinking about it, you know, I've been thinking about it. How do I make it all make sense in my mind? And I like for it to be a similar straight line. Although recently I've been thinking, especially since the newest Trek has come out, the JJ Abrams movies have come out. It's opened my mind to other universes, other timelines and the possibilities that, you know, I was thinking about how do you even know what timeline you're looking at, depending on what Star Trek episode and what series you're looking at. There's so many time incursions that happen that I was looking at it. I was thinking about, okay, well, if I really want to get down to it, where did the Star Trek creator start being more consistent? Because original series, it wasn't even consistent with itself and it didn't have anything to bounce itself off of. And let's face it, they didn't even know they were going to be back. Yeah, it really didn't start to get internally consistent until about maybe the third season of The Next Generation. Because even the first two seasons of Next Generation weren't completely consistent with That's themselves. exactly what I was thinking. Exactly what I was thinking. Third season TNG. So in my mind, I was thinking, what if I drew a dotted line in the continuity? At what point can I draw that dotted line? It's not a hard, solid line. It's just a dotted line that everything's a little fuzzy before that dotted line, as far as original series and as far as TNG goes. But beyond that dotted line, things started getting a lot sharper, a lot more consistent. DS9, they were really trying to keep that really consistent. I mean, they really, they helped the Ferengi out a lot. You know, they they made up for what happened earlier with TNG. And that's another whole other issue. Like we could maybe do a part two of this with other issues. We could bring the Ferengi in on that. And I was thinking season three, TNG, that's where my dotted line goes. That's where it's kind of foggy at on one side of that dotted line. And then it gets a lot more clear beyond that dotted line. And Enterprise was the last series made. So it was at the sharpest. I mean, it literally is the sharpest. It was, it was filmed in high def. You can go in right now and look at what was on their monitors and what was on their pads. And you can li- read the little messages that are on their uh, the stickers that are on the panels when you walk around, which by the way, Tommy, did you put any messages or anything on your, on your sets for horizon? Uh, what I did was I could, I tried my hardest to completely copy everything that was on the original sets. So everything that was on their original stickers or on their original keypads and everything, I tried as much as I could when I could get a close up to replicate what it said. I unfortunately was not, uh, <laughs> creative enough to create my own easter eggs either that or i just didn't have the energy well i mean and the way you did your sets you didn't have to worry about it being a close-up unless you wanted to be a close-up the way they did their sets they had to make them like super detailed because they didn't know what was going to be happening three years from now or something so that makes a lot of sense exactly and it's it's not even something that they worried about at all on the previous shows either because some of the stickers on the door panels for the Enterprise D had like the theme song to Gilligan's Island written on them. Yeah. Oh, I haven't heard that one. Because they figured nobody's ever going to see this anyway, so why not just put yeah. whatever we want on here? Yeah, and like the the display panel in Sick Bay on the Enterprise D had uh, a, a button labeled "Medical Insurance Remaining." I would like to, you know, we should do an episode where we try to explain the canon of all of these uh, nonsense <laughs> phrases and sayings on, on the buttons and panels. How they showed up. Oh, the original series was good because they had the GNDN, goes nowhere, does nothing. <laughs> I didn't know about that. Did it actually say that? 
Yeah, it's on yeah. the uh, um, like the pipes and uh, that go around on the on the ship. A lot of them are labeled GNDN, which stood for goes nowhere, does nothing. But as GNGN, it actually sounds kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And unless you know the backstory behind right. the scenes, what that stands for, you know, it's just like, oh, you know, it's got some kind of code on it. Yeah. Well, guys, I really enjoyed this conversation. It's been bugging me a little bit because sometimes you read on these uh, message boards and you want to try to explain it in text, but then you just stop because it's like, uh, it doesn't really matter what I say. But, you know, maybe this can help out some Warp 5 listeners who were frustrated like I was where they read and they hear about people trying to poke holes in Enterprise. That was mainly my whole focus about this was just trying to you know, just help the enterprise fans maybe with a little bit of some ammo, maybe, I don't know, or some, some, some armor, maybe just to take it like, Hey, this can easily be explained. You know, maybe if it's not even easily explained, you can suspend your belief just a little bit since it is a TV show in the sixties. And we're trying to connect it to a 2000 show that it's not that hard to put it together. If you really want to, that's the trick. If you want to, if you don't want to, it doesn't really matter what anyone says or how, how well we explain it. If they don't want to understand it, they don't want to understand it, but we're enterprise fans and we can make it fit. And Hey, it's been a lot of fun creating in universe explanations, but this isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM. So here's what else you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, the ready room. You don't create a better future and then it's just there and it's just stagnant and nothing ever threatens it, right? That's not reality. Yeah, you'd end up with Star Trek The Next Generation if you did that, right? Right, well, exactly. (laughs) And I think that's why a lot of people who love The Next Generation don't like Deep Space Nine because Deep Space Nine challenges that premise. The 602 Club. That's that's a great point. And I love that you bring that up. Kind of thinking about, you know, Cap has this continuing education for his modern education. Saturday Morning Trek. We have Star Trek the Animated Series coming to Blu-ray. Okay, I see. So rather than producing Deep Space Nine and Voyager, uh, which everyone wants on Blu-ray... The Animated Series has already been scanned into HD, and if you watch Netflix, you'll see them in that that higher resolution. So it's not much of a a leap to put it together into Blu-ray. You know, it's not the Blu-ray that people wanted, but it's the Blu-ray that they deserve. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at trek.fm and grab the RSS link there as well. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. And if you like what you hear on Warp 5 or any of the Trek FM network shows, please leave us a star rating and a review, which will help us greatly increase our visibility for new listeners. And speaking of star ratings, we got a new five-star review from the U.S. store from Go Vote for Jeff. It says, uh, taking Trek's first steps at the end of the line. And... This review says, Just when you thought Enterprise had faded from the American consciousness, Trek FM rolls out a fantastic podcast called Warp 5 that delves into the storylines, relationships, and if you're a fan of To The Journey, who doesn't like a good relationship expose, the possible future for Season 5 and beyond, and the dawn of the advanced technology that can actually take us to the stars. 
As the hosts have changed over time, usually moving from one podcast series to another since these are fan-written, hosted, and produced, the show has kept a high standard of digging into the nuance and hidden stories within each episode, some of which were as obscure as a Klingon bird of prey inside the Delphic Expanse. New host Floyd Dorsey and Jeffrey Mr. Ataz Harlan have assumed the center seat and engineering console and are keeping up some very high standards. So sit back with a bowl of plomeek soup or a plate of pan-fried catfish and add all 92 so far episodes to your favorite podcast app. If you become a true fan like me, maybe you'll even get your own NX-class ship in Star Trek Online and call it the USS Warp 5 as well. Yeah, when I saw that, I squealed a little bit because that was that was that's pretty awesome. Like I like Star Trek Online. I don't get to get on there as often as I would love to, but yeah, man, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, we also have another five star review in the Canadian store. It's from Commander Shelby, and it was titled "Get Your Enterprise Fix." I recently discovered this all enterprise podcast, an excellent companion when rewatching the series, and just a heck of a lot of fun. Great work, guys. Keep it up. So thank you there, Commander Shelby. And we have another one from the Canadian store. This is from DJ Shea. I have a feeling I know who DJ Shea is. If you're a fan of Trek FM, maybe Melodic Trek, you might know who DJ Shea is. It says, great job to the new hosts. Hey, guys, keep up the great work. Enjoying the new team. Can't wait to hear more. And thank you so much, DJ. Maybe Brandon Shea. I don't, I don't know. Maybe so. Um, Jeff, uh, we have a couple of others, don't we? Uh, yes, and thank you again to uh, both of those uh, reviews from the Canadian store. Uh, those are really great, and we appreciate that. Uh, from the UK store, we have False Bill of Caladria. says, Not Forgotten. Warp 5 is the Enterprise podcast for all those who love this sadly overlooked and maligned Star Trek series. A broad range of topics from the show are discussed, and the host's love for the show is the driving force that keeps it fresh and entertaining. Yeah, thank thank you, False Bill. An older review from the UK store as well, uh, from Chris Shipley, says, Hidden Jim, like the TV show, this is great and it deserves more followers. Thank you, Chris. Actually, I found the Chris's uh, five-star review was from a while back, but I see him often in the Babel Conference and he, he, he comments on our show posts, so I thought I'd give a shout out to him. And I accidentally found it in the UK store because I'm in the US store. So unless I log into iTunes on my computer and go directly to a certain country's store, I don't actually see the reviews. So any of you that are giving us uh, reviews, just shoot me a message or Jeff a message, or you can post it in the Babel conference and let us know that you gave us a review and what, what country the store is. That way we can go directly to it. Because I don't know if you go down to the bottom left-hand corner of your iTunes store it says change my country and you'll see there are a lot of countries to look for. So I actually looked in the Canadian store because uh, Brandon Shea actually told me, he messaged me, private messaged me and told me that he had left a message for us or left a five star review. And then I checked the UK store because I know we have a lot of uh, listeners that I actually know who they are. I know they're from the UK because they've mentioned they have been, but if you're from another country anywhere, if you're leaving us five star review, even if it's in the U S store, please drop me a line or drop Jeff a line. Let us know because we'd surely like to recognize you. And I'd like to enter you in our Blu-ray review contest. So we've still got that going. Uh, right now we're up to 10 so far and we're trying to get to 20. And when we get to 20, that's when we're going to pull the name out of the hat 
and we're going to give away that Enterprise Full Journey Blu-ray set to a lucky Warp 5 listener. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels, along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, you can even, if you're at $15 or more, you can get into the patrons roundtable. And that's a great thing. I mean, that's where I got started. That's where I actually met Jeff on the patrons roundtable number two. So we really appreciate your support and hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all the details at patreon.com slash Trek FM. If you want to wear your Trek FM fandom, you can also find great Trek FM themed merchandise at redbubble.com. Just type Trek FM into the search field. Get you a t-shirt, get you a throw pillow, get you a cell phone cover. If you want to rock your Trek FM, you can. And it is great to walk around wearing Star Trek t-shirts and people ask you about it. But it's even better when they you're wearing a Trek FM t-shirt and they ask you, hey, what's Trek FM? Never heard of it. It's, it's really great. As all shows, I like to thank my co-associate producer, Mike Morrison. You can find Mike on the Babel Conference, Trek FM's dedicated Facebook listeners page. You can also hear Mike over on his new show, Metatrex, where he and Zachary Furling discuss all things philosophical through a Star Trek lens. And while I'm throwing out thank yous, I always like to give a special shout out to Christopher Jones, the Warp 5 editor and producer. He's the one that makes the engine go here. We get to talk, but he's the one that splices it with all the editing magic. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on Trek FM contact or go to speakpipe.com slash Trek FM. You can leave us a voicemail message there and we can actually put it on the show. We haven't had one of those yet, so that would be really cool. You can also contact us through Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. And as we've mentioned, the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at Trek FM and click discussion on the menu bar. So, Tommy, thank you so much for coming on. If our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, how could they find you? Well, there's uh, a couple of ways. I have the Twitter, and that's at Tommy G Dog. Uh, Chris, the our, you know the editor on Warp Five, used to always give me a hard time. He'd call me Tommy G Doggy Dog. Uh, that was my very bad uh, Christopher Jones. It almost turned into a Bernie Sanders impression. Uh, and <laughs> uh, and then there's uh, the Star Trek Horizon Facebook page, Star Trek Horizon page. And the page for my new movie, Project Discovery, which is an original science fiction space epic. Check out Project Discovery. I manage all these pages and the Twitter and find me on Facebook. So uh, if you're into that stuff, check me out. Yeah, actually, Tommy, you had mentioned earlier that you were going to do a sequel to Horizon. And as as it's been mentioned on the Babel Conference and around the interwebs and on other podcasts, uh, you had to put a stop on that. But actually, that turns into a good thing. It turns into a positive thing because now... You're actually going to go forward with your directing partner from Star Trek Horizon, and you're going to have a new original project. So do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, the nutshell version is I was going to do Federation Rising, which was a Horizon sequel to talk more about the Romulan War, a fan film. But CBS advised me not to go forward with that due to the legal troubles with the acts in our case. So I decided to follow their advice. And move forward with an original science fiction project called uh, Project Discovery. And so the gist of Project Discovery is it takes place in the 2060s, and it's about the crew and the developers of Earth's first faster-than-light starship. 
It's really about this whole idea of getting people excited about space travel again and uniting people around the world for this common cause of taking humanity to space. So if that sounds like a cool movie to you, we are uh, funding on Kickstarter right now. Uh, so check that out, Kickstarter, and go just search for Project Discovery, projectdiscoverymovie.com, uh, and facebook.com slash projectdiscoverymovie. Very good. Thank you so much, Tommy. For that, we won't have to do a show where we're trying to connect Project Discovery with Enterprise. I mean, you're you're going to do like a like from, from what I can tell, it's like a realistic. This is Earth in a little bit of our future, and we're going to go do this. We're going to go faster than light. And is that is that what we're talking yeah. about here? That sounds. Oh great. yeah, completely original. That sounds great. Thank you. I mean, it's completely original science fiction, and it has all those Star Trek influences that uh, uh, that Ryan and I love so much. And uh, I met him on Horizon. He played the chief engineer, and as we talked on that movie, we just, we realized that we would be great friends, and we became great friends over our love for Star Trek and filmmaking. And so, when I was looking to do my next project, we decided to develop it together, and that is Project Discovery. Very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Tommy. It's always great having you on. Jeff, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Well, if you don't have access to an Atavicron or even a Borg Sphere with a temporal generator, you can always find me on the Babel Conference on Facebook. I'm the co-host both here on Warp 5 and also on Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated original series show. I'm also on Twitter at Harlander, and I'm a supporter of the network through Patreon. And I've also donated to uh, Tommy's new film. Uh, I'm very excited to see that come to fruition. Thank you for that, by the way. I really uh, appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, you can also check out my website. It's been called The Grand Unified Theory of Star Trek. That's at trekopedia.com. And my independent comic books at bandwidthcomics.com. Or search on Facebook for Bandwidth Comics. Right. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for uh, coming on as you always do and helping out with the explaining. Some people think the unexplainable, but it, I think we did a pretty good job with it. Um, listeners, if you want to get in touch with me, you can find always find me in the Babel Conference, the Trek FM listeners page on Facebook. That's the easiest place to find me. I have a Twitter account, but I don't even know if it's activated because I don't ever even look at it. But I am checking Babel conference and my uh, private messages all the time, every day, all throughout the day, probably more than I should, but that's where you can find me. So Jeff, let's go ahead and get out of here. Well, thanks everyone for listening and join us again next time for another episode of warp five. <laughs>